This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Hi, folks. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones, host of the podcast, Transformative Principal, and author of the book, School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People in Front of You. Greetings, folks. I'm Frederick Lane. I'm an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I are teaming up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. And over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the nation's leading experts in the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. This week, however, we are doing a live show talking about the year in review, uh, what we learned during 2020. So join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. You can find the podcasts on all your favorite podcast players. Make sure you subscribe, and we're excited to talk with you today. Well, Jethro, good to see you again. I hope your holiday was good. It sure was great time and I am excited to be here and excited to be doing a live show and this is a always a fun thing we do these on Monday mornings at 9 a.m pacific noon eastern so I hope that you'll uh, scroll on over to Facebook and join us if you're listening to this in the feed later on sounds good well you know it's exciting because for our first live show we're going to actually be looking backwards at the year that was. And um, gee, nothing much to talk about, I guess. <laughs> Except everything. Except oh, man. like our entire world. Yeah, no, what a bizarre year from a tech parenting, tech education point of view. And yeah. so I, I think what we'll lead off with is, well, the obvious question, what did the pandemic do to how we educate our kids and how our schools function? And what are some of the risks that arose out of that? Yeah, well, in our, uh, in our next interview that we're releasing later this week, we're going to be talking about the increased surveillance that has happened as a result of the pandemic that um, 
for years, those of us in education have been talking about um, creating assessments that are authentic and not just focusing on the test. Um, and uh, our interviewee, uh, Charles Logan, is going to talk about that later this week. And really fascinating how in many ways in education, we just went from doing all the stuff we did in school to doing all that stuff online. And in many ways, it was a complete and total failure. In other ways, we learned new and amazing things that people never knew could be possible. And, and so the first thing I think we should talk about is this idea of in-person versus remote instruction and how that has, uh, how that has changed things. And um, you've used the phrase, a lost generation. Tell us what you think about that. Sure. Um, before I dive into that, let me just follow up briefly on your surveillance point, because I think that that will be one of the underlying themes that you and I will be talking about over the coming year as we do more and more interviews and, and we do these weekly shows. There was already, before the pandemic hit, a, a strong trend towards the use of surveillance technology in schools. And a lot of that, of course, was driven by parental concerns about safety and so forth. Um, interestingly, New York State just became the first state to prohibit the use of facial recognition in schools, which That's I think you're going to see more and more states taking a look at. Um, a couple of the books that I've, I've written in the past, um, The Naked Employee and then American Privacy, have really dived into uh, this issue of facial recognition and, and the impact on our society. It's really disconcerting how much we fast forwarded that within the school environments as a result of all of this. So, you know, that I think will be an ongoing theme that we need to address. But in terms of your specific question, um, the phrase, a lost generation, obviously harkens back to the 60s, right? Uh, when people were trying to navigate the transition from, you know, the post-World War II baby boom into, um, uh, you know, hopefully a more egalitarian world, but there were all of these various conflicts in our society. I think the use of the phrase with the kids today is the sense that this pandemic has really revealed profound cracks in our society that illustrate that some children were always on the bubble in terms of their effective access of education. And when we went online and technology was a critical component of that. The cyber trap, if you will, it was revealed for the whole society is that we don't have effective and equitable access to the technology that kids need to be educated. So that's one part of it. And then getting to something I think that's much more up your alley, Jethro, which is you know, the actual relative value of in-person versus uh, remote learning. You know, Have we reached a point where we're as effective remotely as we are face-to-face. -face. Yeah, you know, I think one, one thing we need to recognize is that we may be effective in some ways remote um, that we were, could never be effective in before. But going back to that issue of access, that is a real challenge that many schools have faced. And in the spring and even into the fall, many schools shifted from educating to being distributors of meals, technology, 
uh, Wi-Fi on buses, different things like that. Mm -hmm. And so people have, you know, really rethought what their uh, paradigm was as it came to what our role is as schools. And so we went from being all about, you know, education, quote unquote, to being all about basic needs. Uh, and a phrase that came up often this year was Maslow before Bloom. So instead of you try, instead of trying to do, you know, uh, real education, you need to make sure that Maslow's hierarchy of needs are being met before you can even try to do anything related to education. Well, that's a really terrific observation. And I haven't heard it put just that way, but it, it really is a great distillation of what needs to be done. Um, when I was on the Burlington School Board, we had a couple of um, inner city schools. And of course, you know, in Burlington, inner city is a relative term compared to some of the other places in the country, but still, there was some serious socioeconomic disparity. And in you know, those two particular elementary schools, there was a real focus on putting in better food services, clothing services, even dental services, because you're absolutely right. If a kid is sitting in the classroom hungry, they're not concentrating. It's hard enough when they've got a full stomach. So I, I think that that gets at the broader issue of educational equality. I think what has been revealed to us is the importance of technology in that hierarchy of needs, right? It's not exactly, will you be able to function as a, as a being, you know, food, water, et cetera. But in terms of a child's ability to have equal opportunity to participate in society, access to these kinds of technological tools is increasingly critical. Yeah, and we think that, you know, because of the standardization approach that we've taken in education for the last several years, that we have a system in place that works well in schools, but then when you get, when something like this happens and kids can't come to school, you realize that that, that system was not set up for the benefit of everybody even still. Even though we made great, great strides toward that, we still have a long way to go to making sure that everybody gets what they need. <clears throat> and this is an area of education where um, I, I know that I differ strongly from a lot of other folks in education, where I, I believe that education should be about giving kids what they need when they need it, and recognizing and knowing them well enough to know what it is that they're struggling with, and then giving them support in that area. And a lot of people in education really don't think of it that way. They think of it as giving every kid the same thing. And, um, and that's not equity. That is equality that's giving everybody the same kind of thing. And so we need to have this discussion about what is equity, which is giving people what they need when they need it, and what is equality, which is giving everybody the same thing. And what we have to recognize is that some people need a lot more than other people, kids with special needs, kids in uh, low SES socioeconomic status um, homes, uh, kids without access to technology, they need more. You know, someone like my family, where I'm a school principal and my wife is a stay-at-home mom, I mean, we don't need as much as my neighbor across the street, who's uh, both parents are essential workers and are gone all day long. They can't be there to help their kids with anything. So they need more support from the school. And we have to be okay with schools providing more support to some people and less support to others. I really, I, <clears throat> excuse me, I really like that analysis. I was thinking earlier today, as I was getting ready for our conversation, that one of the unfortunate things is that 
a certain amount of toxicity has been attached to the concept of privilege. And it, it's unfortunate, right? But I, I can see why that would happen. You know, people are reluctant to admit or to embrace the idea that they have more privilege, quote unquote, than other people. But one way I think that you might be able to turn down the temperature on that is talk about opportunity. And this country has always prided itself on being the land of opportunity. But to tie into what you're saying, that can't be true if the access to opportunity is not equitable. And, and so it seems to me that what we should be working towards is a school structure that provides equal access to opportunity to give people a chance to see what they can do with it. But if we don't do that, I actually think we're shooting our society in the foot because we're missing out on the benefits that we as a society would enjoy if those opportunities were available to everybody. Yeah, and, and that brings up a good point. I don't wanna to go too far off what we're really talking about, but, <laughs> but when you think of it as opportunity and, um, and giving everybody more opportunity, that goes back to that idea of Maslow's before blooms that many people who are successful went through really difficult things to in order to become successful and it's not that we need to alleviate any kind of challenges for our students but we need to give them more opportunity like you were saying and i think that's that's a vital um piece of this uh I, as we as we think about how educators have been educating during this time we have in in some way set them up for for failure in a whole new way that we've never imagined. <laughs> for example, um, the idea of a teacher teaching um, students live in her classroom and students remotely at the same time, trying to deliver the exact same content to both of those things is just a bad idea, period, end of story. And <laughs> people are doing it and they're doing the best they can with it. But in, in a previous position, I was in charge of um, the distance learning program for our school in 2009, 2010 time period, or for the whole school district. And so what distance learning looked like for us then, um, my, my job title was distance learning or media technology and distance learning team lead. So it was like right there in my job title. We had a whole team dedicated to it. And distance learning looked very different because it was a sign language class was the majority of what we were doing. A sign language teacher at one high school teaching sign language to the other high schools, as well as those students in her class. Basically, we did that because we wanted lots of sign language and we couldn't, we couldn't find enough teachers to be able to teach all of them. And that one, and we couldn't find enough kids to wanna to take it for it to be a worth, worthwhile investment to have a teacher in every school. So this one teacher taught to multiple locations and uh, this teacher had a lot of training to do that. Uh, the teacher had uh, aides in the other classrooms to make sure the kids were on task, make sure they were safe, all that kind of stuff. And we had very expensive polycom technology that enabled this to work with individual mics on each table between every two students that had mute buttons that we trained the kids how to use so they knew how to do it appropriately that and that was still hard it still didn't work great i mean there were still a lot of challenges let me ask you this jethro what's the time frame from a tech perspective because i'm fascinated uh, that was 2009 2010. okay so, so not about a decade yeah yeah um but we we had invested a ton of infrastructure training 
additional staff to make sure that this worked. And now we're telling teachers to do it to all these different places. I personally think that's a horrible idea. If there's something that every kid needs to know, that should be recorded and published in a podcast or YouTube video or something like that. Everything else should be a small group, individual meeting with the teacher, things like that. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, if you're trying to give a lecture and you're trying to do it live and get interaction from everybody, all you're doing is wasting time and it's not very effective. And the beauty of things like Khan Academy is that that, that stuff has already been done. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. And so you can just have the kids watch a video and then spend your time actually working with them. I went it's on a little really, rant, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been really interesting because uh, my wife is a professor of art history and she's been teaching remotely now for the last two semesters. And some classes are online courses where some of that material is recorded and then there are you know, group projects that, that take place. And others for contract reasons have to be remote instruction, which means actual interaction with the people that are online. And it's been really interesting to watch how those two different models play out in terms of absorption, uh, the kinds of activities that make sense and so on and so forth. Um, pulling this back a little bit to kind of our main topic in terms of the, the cyber traps that people face, one of the things I thought would be useful would be to just go over some of the challenges that I think educators have experienced as a result of the remote learning, because we need to learn from this when we're going forward. You know, we need to think through some of these issues. So in the research that I've been doing as part of uh, my work on this and the writing that I do, a couple of things have really struck me. Number one, effectively, each teacher who's doing a remote class now has 20 or 25 separate classrooms is the way I think that I would view it because they're speaking to an audience at the other end of the camera. And with that, one of the themes that I, I follow with some interest is the zone of privacy, if you will, for educators. And I think one of the things that the pandemic has done is shrink that zone of privacy, partly because now teachers need to reveal their homes if they're teaching remotely from the house. So for instance, we need to be conscious now of what's behind us, right? In terms of how we look on camera and stuff like that. But the other piece of it too, is that they don't necessarily know who is listening in on their lessons. And social media and smartphones have already exacerbated the problem of teachers being criticized for homework assignments, for how they say things, so on and so forth. Um, now, if you've got parents listening in to their remote lessons, we've already seen stuff pop up on social media where parents are really outraged at the lessons they're hearing. Well, and, and it's one thing to be outraged at a lesson that you hear. It's another thing for, um, and I haven't heard anything of about this yet, but there have been, there are confrontations between teachers and uh, parents all the time. And imagine if that parent is listening in and now uh, they don't agree. So now they're interjecting and having a confrontation with the teacher in front of all the students. Um, one, what do you do as a teacher in that situation? And two, um, who who's there to support and help the teacher when that kind of stuff happens, you know, in a school, you, yeah. 
you have you see a mad parent coming in you as the principal step up and say hey i'm glad you're here let's go have a chat and i'll walk with you down and talk to that teacher if you need to so that you can be a support and that that support just doesn't exist in a in a virtual environment like that i've already run across one or two instances uh in which precisely that situation has happened you know where a teacher is trying to make some point um Unfortunately, American history has become a real flashpoint. And so, you know, there are instances where people are literally yelling at the teacher, that's not what happened. That, you know, that's wrong. And and yes, you know, there <laughs> there's always been a push and pull between schools and the public in terms of curricula, but it's usually a more rational thought out process than having to deal with someone yelling at you over a webcam. So you know, as a principal, I don't know what you do unless you're trying to sit in on every class, which is impossible. Which is impossible. And that also changes how things go. As a principal, when you walk into a classroom, it's it's one thing to like go into a classroom and see the kids sitting there and walk around and see what's going on. It's another thing to go into a Zoom room with 30 boxes on the screen and be announced that you're coming in ding dong, the principal's here and everybody knows behavior is going to change um, in one way or another. That could mean that bad things stop, which is great, but it could also mean that a teacher feels even more stressed, even more pressured to do things the right way, which nobody knows what the right way is right now. (laughs) Right, because we're still sorting all of this stuff out. Well, you know, I think that that is obviously going to be a fertile field of discussion going forward because we're not going to get rid of remote learning this spring for sure and even when we go back in the fall there are going to be elements of remote learning i think that will stick with us so we can definitely put a you know a thumbtack in this one and and come back to some of the topics Um, the other main theme i think that we were going to cover today is this issue of what kinds of things parents should be thinking about vis-a-vis their children who are engaged in remote learning. And um, I have eight nephews and nieces who are going through all of this right now. And, you know, well, actually, no, the oldest is in college, so he can deal with his own stuff. (laughs) But there's no question that it has been super challenging for them to try to figure out how to navigate these things and you know because this is a topic that's important i've been reading a lot of articles about parents and their coping mechanisms there was a great article just this morning in the new york times um i think either that or the washington post but basically this um essay by a mother saying the pandemic has made me into the mother i don't want to be and listing some of the things that have gone through her head and she also talked about and I like this phrase, searching for yeses. She was searching for all of the things that she could say yes to. So some of the topics that we've talked about and and wanted to cover, things like screen time, game time, um, you know, use of devices, those rules have had to shift a bit because of the lack of personal interaction. So where do parents draw the line? How do you balance some of those concerns given the fact that X number of hours per day are spent on a screen just trying to do remote learning. So does that count against the screen time thing? 
you know, that's, that's an interesting question. I'd love your thoughts on it. Well, you know, for my other podcast, Transformative Principle, I interviewed Heather Staker. And one of the things that she said several years ago, actually now, um, is that people don't care um, about screen time when the screen time is used in a productive way. So if screen time is used as, you know, doing something productive like schoolwork, then screen time is not typically seen as a negative because you're doing something productive. And so I think we need to define what screen time is a little bit better and say, is it um, anytime you're looking at a screen with a backlit display? And does that include an e-ink display like a Kindle or something else? Or is screen time anytime that you're involved in brainless, <laughs> meaningless activities on a device, which it could include gaming and other things. So, well, we're going to be doing a quick word survey and that brings up doom scrolling. Which is... That's right. <laughs> doom scrolling. <laughs> so where uh, uh, you just get caught in scrolling through all the bad things that are going on in the world, which is a very bad idea. Um, so <laughs> anyway, is, is screen time really bad if you're using it for positive things? Well, that's a debate that I think is that still has a lot of legs to it. And if if school is is not being used effectively, then I don't think that that screen time is necessarily worthwhile. So for my own family, what we did is we saw these things happening uh, and we moved this summer uh, from Alaska down to Washington. And we we decided we weren't going to put our kids in school because we knew that it wasn't going to be effective for us because um, we didn't know anybody. We didn't have any relationships. Had we stayed in Fairbanks, we definitely would have probably stayed in school because we knew the teachers, we knew the school, we knew the routines already. And so we could have done, we could have made a different decision. Uh, all except for my oldest child who has special needs, who we decided that was worthwhile for her to be able to go to school because she can go physically into the school because, um, because of her special needs. And, and so those kinds of things are set up and that's, that's good. Uh, so screen time, that's a big issue. We knew it wouldn't be worthwhile. So our kids are using devices, but we're structuring school differently. We're homeschooling and, and that can look different. So sure. and, and, and I think that's, that's a great summation, Jethro. I, I, I absolutely agree with you, right? I, I used to be a lot more doctrinaire about this when I was first getting into the whole cyber traps world. And and I think a more nuanced approach, right? What is the purpose of screen time is legit. And then you have to take into consideration global factors, right? If your kid can't go to school and is supposed to be getting their education through a device, well, you know, that doesn't necessarily count against their ability in their downtime to read a book or play Candy Crush or Fortnite or Minecraft or whatever else they want to do. I think the thing for parents though, and, and being, being very cognizant of the fact that my kids are in their you know, mid to late 20s. So a different perspective than say my sister has three kids in an apartment. Um, you know, the issue really is for parents to not lose sight. And I, I make that phrase purposely, not lose sight of some of the physical impacts that devices can have in terms of uh, kid development. So. You know, I think it is important to schedule breaks that make sense so that the kids are not just staring at a screen all the time. It's important to encourage them to do other activities so that they're not hunched over 
you know, straining their necks to use a device or what have you. So be cognizant of the fact that like any other tool in our lives, if overused or misused, you know, these devices can have a negative impact. And yes, everything is harder now, but these are things to keep an eye on. Yeah, and the other piece of that is um, uh, that is not on your list is the idea of Zoom fatigue, which um, which is another phrase yeah. that we had never thought about before. But after a while of just looking at people in boxes, you get kind of stressed out and bothered, and that happens for anybody. So taking breaks, I think, is really important. But then also being able to um, to find things outside of a digital thing to uh, to learn and to grow and develop. And so not just thinking that before we thought education can only happen in the four walls of a classroom. Now it seems that we're thinking that education can only happen it, on our devices. And that's just not true. We can learn in other places and in other ways. And what we as educators need to do, we need to say all learning is acceptable and we should value any learning that happens with families. I think that's a really, really good point. Um, yes, there is a tendency, um, shall we say, on the part of tech vendors to suggest that the only way forward is through the use of more and more sophisticated technological tools. And the parents should always be conscious of the profit motive behind those statements and school boards too, right? We were constantly fending off you know, pitches from different vendors, like this was going to raise, you know, GPAs, or it was going to keep you from being a failing school, just spend X millions of dollars and your problems will be over. And experiential learning is the piece that gets left behind in all of this, the actual um, tactile input that kids need for a whole bunch of different reasons. So I, I think your point is spot on. We need to make sure that uh, for someone who loves technology as much as I do. I have really been reminded during this pandemic of the value of hands-on activities. It's really, it's made a huge difference to me. Yeah, for sure. And here's another thing. With my own kids, I've seen some tremendous growth in them doing things like making scarves on a loom or making hats mm -hmm. or doing leather working or things like that, where you're actually using your hands to interact with something physical really does make a big difference. Now, I wanna change gears a little bit and talk about the normalization of digital interactions with adults, which is a cyber trap that you have talked about extensively. And where in the past, um, texting students was very much frowned upon, having one-on-one -on -one email uh, conversations with them was frowned upon. And in an interview on my other podcast with you many years ago, you said, what we do need to do is ensure that when there are uh, adult student interactions digitally, there needs to be a third party there. And that I think has just been completely uh, blown off to the wayside. Nobody's thinking about that anymore. <laughs> where, where do you stand on that now that we're, we're always, you know, it, interacting with students uh, digitally now? And that's really the only way we can. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough problem. And, and I appreciate, um, number one, your, your good memory. I remember that conversation myself. And it was a real pleasure to, uh, to do that interview with you. It, let me preface this, this part of our conversation by saying that we are talking about a very 
small numerically stated problem mm -hmm. within the educational community. Um, it is unfortunately the kind of thing that grabs a huge number of headlines and it really freaks people out. Um, and so I don't say this with the idea that we need to keep some huge percentage of the educator population from taking advantage of kids. That's simply not true. That being said, even one case is too many. And so the, the issue that you deal with in this situation is how do we make sure that educators do not slide down what my friend Troy Hutchings calls the slippery slope of misconduct, right? And you and I have talked about this repeat, talked about this repeatedly, that there is an intimacy to electronic communication that we tend to overlook. It's very quick, it's person to person, um, it's immediate, it has that sense of reaching out and touching someone in the old AT&T ad. Um, so it, we, we shouldn't think of electronic communications as being remote and cold. I think it's exactly the opposite. So when we had in-person learning, as you know, as a principal, there are structures in place for how conversations occur and, and what the circumstances should be. Electronic communications circumvent a lot of those. And so I was recommending to you that a third adult be nominally on the conversation. They don't have to be live, right? But if it's an email conversation and the email is archived, the adult knows that it's subject to review. If you're texting someone, go ahead and do that, but just make sure it's a group chat with another adult. The other adult doesn't have to be live, but they need to receive those text messages. And back when you and I were first talking, we were aware that this kind of communication was still a little unusual. We need to be more careful now because we have normalized digital communication between educators and students. I would argue that the need for archivability or uh, verifiability or uh, review by some other adults is more important now because kids are used to hearing from the teachers electronically. And we just don't want to steepen that slope of misconduct that Troy was talking about. Uh, I, I just think what you were saying about having a third party uh, involved is really important. And I would also add that even though you may feel like, um, you know, everything's fine, you're not going to fall into that trap. It's respectful to everyone involved for you to take precautions and ensure that there is no question about intent or what could happen or anything like that. And so um, we've we've heard stories about tons of uh, different organizations who are struggling with the same thing of taking advantage of children. And it's just sad, really tragic, and it shouldn't happen. And there are things we can do to prevent it. So I would just encourage everyone to try to do those things to prevent it. Well, and that's an excellent point. And I think that, you know, it, just as a minor caution, again, not a huge numerical set of circumstances, but um, there are instances in which students have made allegations based mm -hmm. on communications. And as an educator, you don't want to put yourself in a position where those kinds of claims can be made either fairly or unfairly. Yeah, so let's move on to our buzzwords from the year. And what we've, <laughs> yeah, what this we've is learned. just a we little get a little more light on this one. 
<laughs> yeah, well, I was going to open the show by wishing wishing you a uh, happy Blur's Day, Jeff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which may be my favorite word for like, oh, wait a second, is it Wednesday? Is it Saturday? <laughs> no, it's yeah. just Blur's Day. <laughs> Yeah. um so yeah that's that's kind of cute i don't think that one is going to last very long hopefully once we get out of this um we can vaccinate ourselves from blur's day but <laughs> the next word i wanted to toss out absolutely will be around and we will be talking about this for some time to come which is deep fake yep deep fake for those of you who haven't run across this yet is the use of artificial intelligence to combine images to create a false video of somebody speaking. And the AI has gotten sufficiently good now, Jethro, so that a sample of photos of you could be collected and pasted over any video that somebody wants. And the artificial intelligence will seamlessly blur your image and make it look like you are singing, speaking, whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a... Um, was it Channel 4 in the UK, created a deep fake of Queen Elizabeth just this past week, delivering kind of a mock Christmas message, which she does every year. And they got absolutely blasted for it. But, you know, every 12-year-old can get access to this technology. Mm -hmm. That's the problem, you know? Yeah. So you could have your classmate saying something nasty about the principal. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to educate our kids really well. Well, and it, it becomes a matter of we used to believe what we could see, and now we can't because what we can see can be faked and changed. And um, it's just, it's it's a totally different experience. We used to be able to trust video, and we have to start questioning it now like we've been questioning many things, which leads to our next uh, word, which is infodemic, which, uh, <laughs> you know, I think there are different variations of this word, but... I think truly what has happened is, and to me, the most stark reality of this is that everybody who's making decisions about the pandemic claims that they trust science and are making decisions based on science. And yet we're making different decisions in different states for different things. And so we don't really have a, um, we don't have data and science is not as clear as we think it should be. And so we can get different interpretations and understanding of those things even when you know two people who are both educated can see things completely different looking at the same set of data and the same information from a quote-unquote reliable source it's going to be a huge huge problem because we all function in the real world you know the, mm -hmm. <laughs> there is a reality in which we move and yeah. so that that reality generates certain actions, certain events, certain circumstances, and we respond to those as best we can. And this word infodemic, which I, th you, I think underscored nicely, is that when we look for the information on which to base our responses, there's so much of it that it's increasingly difficult to know what information is relevant. In my prior life, I, I did a very brief stint as a trial attorney, and even back then, in the early 90s, it was getting harder and harder to verify photographs mm. in court. And now, of course, you know, with Adobe Photoshop and Lightshop and all of the rest of the stuff and deepfakes, what is truth? I mean, that's yeah. a very philosophical issue to pop into. And 
I don't know. Maybe we'll do a truth show someday. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we we probably should. Um, so the the next uh, word of the year is remote learning, and um, we've done uh, virtual learning and distance learning and. Uh, online classes before and what's so interesting is that remote learning has not has changed from being this idea that some people can go and do that over there to we're all doing it now which is just such a fascinating change in our society well for me the the phrase remote learning harkens back to when i did a year as a tech support guy for a local cable company and i would have to uh, go uh, out and teach these older folks how to use the remote <laughs> yeah <laughs> all righty what's next uh, next one is social distancing which yeah. um is uh Sad boy, that yeah that is crazy because social distancing conveys more than just not being physically next to someone it also conveys that you should shame and make people feel badly for not following the social norms which mm. to me is just a crazy crazy term to bring into our uh, to our society because there's so much more impact to that term. Well, think too about you know the role that schools play, right? With with remote learning right now, it's less of a factor. I mean, I realize that a lot of schools are still in person, but think when we go back to being in person, you know, will there still be kind of a social norm of mask wearing? Yeah. Will teachers be asked to do the social distance? We have very complicated issues coming up in the fall of 21. Yes, for sure. And so I would I would propose that people use a better term, which is physical distancing, mm. which um, gives the sense of physically being away from each other, but still being social. And I like that. Yeah, that's yeah, good. I think that's a much better way to do it. And I certainly didn't come up with that. I've heard other people say that. I just don't remember who. <laughs> so <laughs> We'll so, drop a footnote at some point. Yeah. Uh, um, so the next one is uh, WFH, work yeah. from home, work which from home. Uh, you've been doing for years, right? So this is not new to you. Well, yeah, Amy, Amy, my wife laughs about how, you know, I, you know, the pandemic did not do much to change my daily work, <laughs> <laughs> you know, apart from not being able to go out to the coffee shop or anything yep. like that, which is too bad. But uh, yeah, no, it's, it, uh, believe me, the, how shall I put that? Not survivor guilt, but pandemic guilt mm -hmm. kind of kicks in. Maybe that's a phrase we should talk about. Yeah, add that one. You know, on. because you, you know, we, we need to really respect and honor those people who don't have the choice, right, yeah. about work you know you can't stock grocery shelves from your living room that kind that's of right yeah. well and one thing i think is interesting about this is what kinds of things are going to be able to happen because we've seen that we could do it for nine months at right. least uh right. remotely you know there there are plenty of jobs where you can do that and you know i i think if i were in that industry i'd be saying why do i need to go into work you know my well, brother who manages a network for a for company and has for several years has worked from home for years and that's been like his mo he doesn't need to go into the office and stare at blinking lights everything is online so he can stare at the blinking lights from home just as well as he can in the office <laughs> you know there's this is we're, we're planning on moving back into the city at, at the beginning of may and you know i've been watching the impact of all of this on new york and there are a whole bunch of chief financial officers for large corporations saying, why are we paying $800 a square foot to be yeah. in downtown Manhattan when two thirds of our workforce we discovered can now work from home, you yeah. know? 
Yeah, it's and which of course, then you start to do the ripple effect, like all the bodegas that make sandwiches and the little mm -hmm. Korean barbecue places and all the rest, all the things that make New York great depend on that foot traffic. Yeah, well, and it's gonna change how many things happen um, as people move from cities to rural areas and start sure. bringing their experiences and beliefs and all that kind of stuff to those rural areas. That's going to be a really fascinating uh, thing to see as well. But you know, uh, the other thing they'll bring, Jethro, before we move yeah. on, is they'll bring broadband. They will bring better right. internet infrastructure to parts of the country that don't have it. Yeah. And because they'll need it. Uh, to be able to be there. Um, mm -hmm. One of the guests we have coming up uh, is um, took part in a Tulsa, Oklahoma initiative where they would pay people to move there and live in the city so that they could um, build up their infrastructure and, you know, gigabit ethernet and fiber and, um, and a great community to be part of. Like that kind of stuff is really going to matter. So, you know, you don't think of Tulsa as like a tech hub of the country, but they're sure striving to become that by offering these kinds of incentives. All right, so two more words and we'll wrap up our chat for today or phrases, I should say. You're on mute. Or <laughs> unmute yourself. <laughs> yeah, God, if I hear that again, it will be too soon. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. It and is just, it's been weird. And even though I've been using Zoom myself to do podcast interviews for years, to do my mastermind meetings with principals for years, I still will think that I'm not muted and start talking and have these same problems. So it's not like this is a, this is going to go away anytime well, soon. Well, the only I suggestion I would have for Zoom, which give them credit, they have navigated some tricky oh, yeah. issues over the last nine months in pretty good style and, and, and they've ramped up and, and they've managed to kind of keep us all talking pretty impressively. They should make the mute little icon on the windows like four times as big so yeah. you can actually. <laughs> so you can anyway. see it, yeah, yeah exactly. for sure. So it, it seems appropriate to close out this particular live broadcast with a word that manages to bring together both my first book and my last book. <laughs> which is Zoom bombing, Zoom bombing, lovely term. So this is a cyber trap that educators have been grappling with this year. Basic concept is very straightforward. Before Zoom really ramped up its uh, privacy and security measures, um, it was disturbingly easy for people to figure out how to enter a chat to which they did not belong and either do something inappropriate live or patch in some adult content or something mm -hmm. like that. This is a prank that appeals sadly to both middle schoolers and you know mid 20 guys in their basement who think they're hysterical. Um, it's, it's something that has begun to die down a little bit, but it was pretty funny to watch how fast that arose as a problem when we started talking online so much. Yeah, and really tragic because those, some of those things are things that you cannot unsee for the rest of your life. And this that is, is true. that is, is the, true. the sad part of it. Um, and, you know, that among many other things is what the kind of thing that we're talking about on this podcast. And it's something that we need to pay attention to and be aware of and think about how to make choices that will enable us to be 
uh, safer and not have these things happen. Well, we're going to be here to help. All right, Jethro. So that wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast in the coming weeks. We will continue both our live discussions and our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, as Jethro said at the beginning, we will talk to a growing collection of interesting experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. And you can find the Cybertraps podcast on all of the popular uh, podcast streaming services. And we hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions or comments or topic suggestions. We'll take those as well. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you must have enjoyed what we were talking about. So please go leave us a five-star rating and review in your podcast player of choice and check out cybertraps.com for more information. We appreciate having you in our audience and look forward to talking with you over the coming weeks. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com slash B to learn how IXL's research proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com slash BE.